Well, our Bible reading uh, this evening is from Esther chapter 9, verse 20, and to uh, the end of the book, chapter 10 and verse 3. So let's read this together. Esther 9, verse 20. Mordecai recorded these events, and he sent letters to all the Jews throughout the provinces of King Xerxes, near and far, that they should celebrate annually the 14th and 15th days of the month of Adar, as the time when the Jews got relief from their enemies, and the month when their sorrow was turned into joy, and their mourning into a day of celebration. He wrote to them to observe the days as days of feasting and joy, and giving presents of food to one another and gifts to the poor. So the Jews agreed to continue the celebration they had begun, doing what Mordecai had written to them. For Haman, son of Hamadatha the Agagite, the enemy of all the Jews, had plotted against the Jews to destroy them and had cast the poor, that is, the lot, for their ruin and destruction. But when the plot came to the king's attention, he issued written orders that the evil scheme Haman had devised against the Jews should come back onto his own head and that he and his sons should be impaled on poles. Therefore, these days were called Purim from the word Pur. Because of everything written in this letter and because of what they had seen and what had happened to them, the Jews took it on themselves to establish the custom that they and their descendants and all who joined them should without fail observe these two days every year in the way prescribed and at the time appointed. These days should be remembered and observed in every generation, by every family, and in every province, and in every city. And these days of Purim should never fail to be celebrated by the Jews, nor should the memory of these days die out among their descendants. So Queen Esther, daughter of Abihail, along with Mordecai the Jew, wrote with full authority to confirm this second letter concerning Purim. And Mordecai sent letters to the, all the Jews in the 127 provinces of Xerxes' kingdom, words of goodwill and assurance, to establish these days of Purim at their designated times, as Mordecai the Jew and Queen Esther had decreed for them, and as they had established for themselves and their descendants in regard to their times of fasting and lamentation. Esther's decree confirmed these regulations about Purim, and it was written down in the records. King Xerxes imposed tribute throughout the empire to its distant shores and all his acts of power and might together with a full account of the greatness of Mordecai whom the king had promised are they not written in the book of the annals of the kings of Media and Persia Mordecai the Jew was second in rank to King Xerxes preeminent among the Jews and held in high esteem by his many fellow Jews because he worked for the good of his people and spoke up for the welfare of all the Jews. Let's pray together, shall we? Father, we ask you, please, to speak your word uh, into our hearts and into our lives. We ask you to draw us to Jesus as we explore this gripping and ancient story and see its important relevance for us today. For Jesus' sake we pray. Amen. Well, let me tell you about Jarrett, uh, who was about 20 when he joined the US Army. Uh, he was at the time a happy, optimistic young adult with a life of adventure ahead of him. Soon after signing up, Jared was posted to serve in Afghanistan. 
And one day he was supposedly uh, on, on guard at the front gate of his camp. But unfortunately he was, uh, he was dozing. But then suddenly an enemy mortar round exploded right near him woke him up and stunned him into a kind of panic of, of frenzied action. It was awful. Well, that memory, that trauma, uh, together with the memory of seeing one of his comrades killed in action, stayed with Jared. And it changed him from a happy-go-lucky farm boy to a frightened, overprotective, easily provoked soldier. On his return to civilian life, Jared was plagued by nightmares and he lived a rather precarious existence, constantly on the edge of being triggered into extreme anger by the slightest of provocations. It was many years before he finally plucked up the courage to turn up at a mental health clinic and get help for what we now commonly recognise as post-traumatic stress disorder. I think Jared's story is just one example in a whole kind of shed load of human experience that has convinced many people of the extraordinary power of significant memories in our lives. And, and it's not just a negative power, it can be a very positive one as well. Uh, my wife, uh, Alison, uh, connected a little while ago on Facebook with a friend that she had made like three decades ago uh, in her years at university. This was an international student who responded to Jesus as Alison got to know her and shared her faith with her. And it was a friendship that sort of came from nowhere. It only lasted a couple of years. But remembering what God had done in those years has, has shaped both Alison's life and the life of the friend that she made back then. For Alison, it fueled her love for people from other cultures and her passion to share Jesus with them. For the friend, it meant her introduction to Christian faith. The power of memories. Memories can give us enormous happiness. Memories can make us very sad. Memories can fire our ambition. They can limit our ambition. They can strengthen our sense of identity. They can damage our strength of identity. Loss of memory tends to diminish us. Suppressed memory can easily uh, control us. Memories are powerful. Memories are our story, the story that has shaped us and helped make us who we are. The power of memories. And because memories are powerful, it means that it's actually hugely important what we choose to remember. Psychologists talk about the importance of what they describe as mental hygiene. Uh, choosing to give space in our minds to the right thoughts and memories. And of course that rather modern wisdom is something already very clear in the scripture. St Paul talks about the importance to our spiritual health of choosing to think about things which are, are, are true and noble and right and pure and lovely and admirable and excellent and praiseworthy. That's in Philippians chapter 4. Mental hygiene. For our spiritual well-being. We should also notice that the opposite of choosing to remember is not trying to forget because that just drives memory underground where in some senses it can become even more powerful. Now to quote the uh, philosopher Paul Tillich, sometimes we need to remember the past 
so that it might be forgotten. Not in the sense that the memory disappears, but in the sense that it is appropriately processed and its power is broken. There's a whole kind of neurophysiology around this that uh, the scientists explain to us as well. So I wonder, what is it that you choose to remember in your life? That's pretty much the place where this extraordinary book of Esther lands. I'm sure you'll agree it's been a very gripping story of God's people facing a threat to their very survival from their arch enemy, Haman. But as we've seen, God stepped in to rescue them through the courage of the beautiful young woman, Esther, in a strategic place, and through the gritty determination of a Jewish man, Mordecai, who cared passionately for the welfare of his people. And this dramatic rescue that we've heard about in this book of, Ex of Esther needs to be remembered, rather as another of God's great rescues. Uh, the rescue from, from uh, slavery in Egypt was remembered in the feast of the Passover. And the, the similarity, I guess, between those two reminds us that although, rather famously, God is not mentioned in the story of Esther, it is him who is always the ultimate rescuer of his people, and therefore his acts which we are encouraged to remember. So our first heading, looking at chapter 9, verses 20 to 22. Don't forget to remember. Don't forget to remember. Have a look at verse 20. Mordecai recorded these events and he sent letters to all the Jews throughout the provinces of King Xerxes near and far that they should celebrate annually the 14th and 15th days of the month of Ada as the time when the Jews got relief from their enemies and as the month when their sorrow was turned to joy and their mourning into a day of celebration. He wrote to them to observe the days of days of feasting and joy and giving presents of food to one another and gifts to the poor. An annual celebration. And it is a celebration. It's a party. There's feasting. There's joy. There's presents. Have a look at the end of verse 22. But because this is a party that grows out of a story of suffering, notice at the end of verse 22, it includes giving help to other people who are suffering, gifts to the poor. The point, I think, is very simple. It matters that we shouldn't forget God's amazing acts of rescue. Instead, we need to build into our lives rhythms of remembering so that we are sure to, to celebrate and give thanks for and never forget what he has done. Alison and I recently celebrated our wedding anniversary. Now, hopefully I won't forget that I'm married. I'd be in trouble if I did. But the anniversary reminds us each year of God's goodness in giving us to each other. I mean, it reminds us of the promises that we made. And it seems to me that these days of Purim being established here are rather similar. An annual rhythm of remembering what God has done, his saving act, because remembering matters. And of course for Christians, remembering the greater rescue, the rescue accomplished by Jesus through his death and resurrection, that matters as well, which is why the celebration of communion is so important 
to us as Christian people. Remember 1 Corinthians 11, the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And then in the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. Broken bread symbolizing a broken body on the cross. Poured out wine, symbolizing blood poured out for our cleansing. Eating and drinking, expressing our faith in what Jesus' death has done to rescue us from our sin and rebellion. Such a powerful way to remember God's saving acts in Jesus, stimulating our imagination, engaging all our five senses. And this, of course, is the way that Jesus wanted us to remember him. So let me ask you, is communion important in your life? Or is it just one of those things that happens every now and then and you turn up to church, oh, it's communion tonight. Oh, yeah, well, very good. No, no, no. Remembering matters. And therefore, communion matters. It needs to be part of the rhythm of our lives. This is what God wants. Communion is God's gift to us to fix in our hearts and minds the memory of what Jesus has done for us. Don't forget to remember. And then our second heading, remembering your story, chapter 9, verses 23 to 26. Now, I, I love parties. Uh, I know not every party has a reason, just occasionally you have a party for the sake of a party, but, but most parties do have a reason, don't they? It's, it's someone's birthday, it's Christmas, it's New Year, or someone's got a new job, or it's midsummer, or something like that. I guess, you know, in my book, any excuse will do, but most parties have a reason. And certainly this celebration that completes the book of Esther has a reason. Verse 23, 23, so the Jews agreed to continue the celebration they had begun, doing what Mordecai had written to them. For Haman, son of Hamadatha the Agagite, the enemy of all the Jews, had plotted against the Jews to destroy them and had cast the poor for their ruin and destruction. But when the plot came to the king's attention, he issued written orders that the evil scheme Haman had devised against the Jews should come back on his own head and that he and his sons should be impaled on poles. The celebration had a reason. There was a story to remember. Now, of course, there's, there's lots of celebration in the Bible, not just annual festivals like this one, but lots of psalms and songs and prayers and poems as well. But almost invariably, the celebration has a reason. It has a because, a, a for just as it does here. So let me give you a few examples. Psalm 96, verses 1 to 4. Sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord, all the earth. Sing to the Lord, praise his name. Proclaim his salvation day after day. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvellous deeds among all peoples. This is celebration big time. But why? Well, it continues, verse 4. For, because, great is the Lord and most worthy of praise. He's to be feared above all gods. A celebration 
with a reason. Or Psalm 98 verse 1, sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvellous things. His right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation for him. Psalm 100 verses 4 and 5, enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him and praise his name, for the Lord is good and his love endures forever. His faithfulness continues through all generations. Or in the New Testament, Ephesians 1 verse 3, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, a classic form of, of Jewish uh, praise, a barakah, a blessing. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus. Why? Because he has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Now, we sing quite a lot in church here at ABC reflecting the fact that there's lots of singing in the Bible. It's a good thing. Celebration matters. But authentic worship isn't just trying to get a kind of feel-good moment about God. No, authentic praise and celebration has a reason, a because. It's a celebration of who God is and what he has done to rescue and save us. So our praise is most alive when we sing things which is passionately focused on Jesus, sing things that lift our hearts to see God for who he is, things that lift us out of ourselves and catapult us into the majesty and the mystery and the richness of God. Worship, if it's to be real, must be rooted in remembering, remembering especially our story of rescue in the death and resurrection and ascension of Jesus. Well, the story is there in verses 24 and 5, isn't it? We read it a few moments ago. Of course, it's a very cut-down version. Perhaps this was part of the official communique for the empire, and therefore it's, it's kind of condensed. But still, the essence of the story is told. A story of rescue, spectacularly orchestrated by an unseen God. Of course, God is still unmentioned here. But I think there's a hint of his presence in this wonderful, rather ironic twist. Verse 26, therefore these days were called the Purim from the word poor. And then look back in verse 24 to see that the poor is the lot or, or the dice. In other words, the fate of God's people appeared to hang on the throw of a dice, but God had shown that ultimately the fate of his people rested with him. He is the sovereign one. And because his people had fasted, they had chosen to pray rather than to eat. That was the turning point of the story. And so God had literally turned a dicey future of despair into a secure future of hope and safety. That was their story. And still in the Jewish celebration of Purim, the same story is told. Once at the end of the first day of fasting, and again at the start of their day of celebration, they remembered their story. And of course that points us, doesn't it, to the drama of communion in the great story of rescue that we remember. You know, when, when I'm taking communion, I, I try to actually watch what's happening. I don't just kind of close my eyes in kind of, well, that sort of reverent kind of, closed eyesness that we sometimes do when we're trying to be quiet and, and, and respectful. But communion isn't perhaps a time for closed eyes because actually it is 
a, a kind of drama, a kind of acting out of what had been achieved on the cross, a dramatic retelling of the story as bread is taken and lifted and torn and broken and given, just as the body of Jesus was taken and torn and twisted in unspeakable pain on the cross and is then given to us as he dies in our place to take the punishment for our sins. And then wine is taken and poured and given just as the blood of Jesus was poured on the cross to cleanse us and our guilty hearts and, and secure our relationship with God forever. It's a dramatic retelling of the story. And then we are served communion because we are meant to receive it as a gift, just as Jesus has come and offered himself to us freely. And we eat and drink the bread and wine, receiving deep into ourselves all that he gives and all he's done for us, so that our story is taken into his story. Dramatic retelling of the story, the drama of communion. And it is, of course, this story that gives us the greatest reason for all our praise and celebration. A story of a global rescue at unbelievable cost, but a cost borne by God himself, who loved the world so much that he gave his one and only son. And then verses 26 to 32, remembering is a must. This is a celebration for everyone. Memories are part of what makes us who we are. That's inescapably true, whether we like it or not. We all remember and we are all formed by our memories. So uh, what matters is, is which memories we nurture and allow to shape us. That's why the Bible talks about this kind of intentional pattern and rhythm of remembering. Remembering is a must for us all. It seems that the many Jewish people had already decided to remember the story of Esther in this annual celebration. And their decision was, uh, was rather reinforced by Mordecai's letter in verses 26 and 7. But that doesn't mean this is just kind of optional, take it or leave it, have it if you fancy it. Now have a look at verse 28, which is so strong, isn't it? These days should be remembered and observed in every generation, by every family, in every province and in every city. And these days of Purim should never fail to be celebrated by the Jews, nor should the memory of these days die out among their descendants. Did you hear all those everys there? And it wasn't just for the Jewish people. Verse 27, uh, Jews took it on themselves to establish the custom that they and their descendants and all who joined them should without fail observe these two days every year in the way prescribed and at the time appointed. All who joined them. In other words, people not from a Jewish background who become part of the Jewish community, they too are encouraged to remember this story. And then... Queen Esther puts her own royal authority behind the establishing of the feast. Verse 29, Queen Esther, daughter of Abihail, along with Mordecai the Jew, wrote with full authority to confirm this second letter, confirming Purim. And verse 32, Esther's decree confirmed these regulations about Purim, and it was written down in the records. Notice it's Esther's decree, because in a human sense, this was Esther's story. 
Although, of course, that's not really the main point. But it does demonstrate that, that God is happy to use courageous women of faith to take forward his plans and to give direction to his people. And in the Bible story, women are not un, uh, unremembered heroes. No, their place is marked out and recorded and acknowledged. Esther's story. But is this really a party? After all, Queen Esther in verse 31 seems to be talking not so much about feasting as fasting. Well, it's, uh, it's true, of course, that the, uh, the day before Purim is known to this day as Esther's fast, because the story of Esther begins with God's people in a desperate place, fasting and praying for deliverance. But the day of Purim itself is a celebration, that God has rescued them from that place of desperation. And so, yes, indeed, it is a celebration, a feast, a party, a party for everyone. And in just the same way, communion is a feast to which everyone is invited. It begins with confession, recognising that we were in a desperate place, guilty, dead and far from God and under his judgment. But it is also a celebration that in Jesus, God has come to rescue us from that place. And therefore, communion is a celebration, a feast, in one sense, even a party, an anticipation of the great banquet in the new creation in which we will share forever if our trust is in Jesus. And just as everyone was called to celebrate Purim, so every one of God's people who trusts in Jesus, is called, invited, summoned even, to the Feast of Communion. Remembering matters, and therefore communion matters. It matters for you, it matters for me, it matters to every one of the people of God. And then chapter 10 gives us a little kind of PS to the story, reminding us that the past will shape the future. Esther is honoured in chapter 9, but Mordecai here in chapter 10. Not because his contribution was greater than hers, but because his authority as number two to Xerxes guaranteed his people not just rescue from Haman, but security within the Medo-Persian Empire. The past rescue that they remembered now secured their future. There's a psychologist called Michael Corson. And uh, he writes about a client of his who, quotes, used to think that the way forward in life was forgetting the past. And I think many of us think that that's how life works. Just move on, we say rather glibly. Well, this client discovered that that approach didn't work. And after a long time, the same client concluded, I see now that it's actually through remembering that I move forward. Because, of course, unacknowledged, suppressed memories have a hidden power and its very hiddenness is what accentuates the power of that memory. It's through remembering that I move forward. Memories matter. But not just any remembering. Not even just through therapy-induced remembering. That has its place, of course. But by committing to remembering the right things, good mental and spiritual hygiene, if you like, committing to living in rhythms of remembering, including the rhythm 
of regularly taking communion. Rhythms that bring us constantly back to the great story of God's rescue of us. The story of what he has done in Jesus through his death and resurrection. Rhythms of remembering that make that story our story. So that through remembering, we can move forward with Jesus. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we celebrate and remember you as the greatest of all of the rescuers who have been given to God's people. We praise you that at such great cost to yourself, you stood in our place and took our shame and carried our punishment and bore our sins away. We thank you that in your resurrection you opened the path to eternal life and defeated the power of sin and Satan and death. Lord, thank you for this great story of Esther and the way that it points to the greater story of Jesus. Thank you for the way that you used her courageous faith to bring deliverance to your people. Give us the same faith to stand for you sometimes in hostile and difficult times. And give us the discipline of remembering. Remembering the great story of all that you have done to save us. That we might faithfully serve you and love you and celebrate your goodness. And make your story our own and share that great story with others. We pray for Jesus' sake.